You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello out there in uh, Archaeology Podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate, manage, and conserve rock art both in Alta, California and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips. We have trainings, exercise. We do research. And in every way possible, we try to preserve, protect, and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja California rock art, of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm, I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts. And also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast. Join us every week for fascinating tales of rock art, adventure, and archaeology. Find our contact info in the show notes and send us your suggestions. Hello, you RPO podcasters. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'd like to introduce episode 67. We have Carrie Crutcher on board today. She is the executive director of the Ridgecrest Convention and Visitors Bureau, also involved with the creation of the one and only Rock Art Festival. So we'll learn a bit about a place called Ridgecrest in the Western Mojave Desert. See you soon, gang. Hello out there in archaeology podcast land. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel, and we are blessed today to have Carrie Crutcher, who is the uh, executive director of the Ridgecrest Convention and Visitors Bureau, also, uh, I believe, the director of the new Welcome Center in uh, Ridgecrest, Welcome, California, and also principally responsible for the annual Petroglyph Festival, and we're going to talk about the Petroglyph Festival. I believe it's the only one in the world and also what we call Petroglyph Park and some of its uh, interesting dynamics right there in the town of Ridgecrest, which has been branded as the city of the petroglyphs. Carrie, are you with us? I am. Thank you for having me back. Carrie, it's good to have you back. And it's, it's always a wonderful interlude to, to speak with you. We just finished up not too long ago a uh, petroglyph festival. What number was that? That was the eighth annual Petroglyph Festival. The eighth annual, eight years of an annual Petroglyph Festival. And I believe that's always the first weekend in November, is it not? That's right. Yeah. So for the last uh, two day, uh, for those two days in November, how many folks do you think showed up? What's the uh, estimate? This last year in 2020, we were coming off the heels of COVID. And so the festival was a little bit oh, yeah. pared down and we had sure. fewer vendors and we just weren't sure what to expect. But as you know, we had a great turnout and we expect that we saw probably 10,000 people over the over both days for sure. I think the first day we had maybe probably six or 7,000. So all wow. things considered, we really can cons- considered uh, this year to be an, a success. 
Well, I attended a conference, an archaeological conference in uh, Las Vegas recently, and the numbers were only 50% of what they had expected uh, on average. So pulling in 10,000 is absolutely incredible. How many vendors do you think you had? So last year, we probably had about 50 vendors. And compared to 2019, that was quite a bit fewer. We had, I think, in 2019, upwards of 100 vendors. And that was definitely the most that we had seen. Yeah. We were just happy to have as many as we could in 2021. And so maybe we should uh, start this off by explaining what a petroglyph festival has been and what it's been and sort of its evolution vis-a-vis your association with it and kind of your uh, repositioning in the last year or two. Uh, Go right ahead. So it really started with my predecessor. His name is Doug Luke, and he and his wife had a passion for petroglyphs and the Native American I want to say art. Is that right, though? What what should I say? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's art. Okay. Sure. Just all things surrounding that. And considering the fact that our city and our valley, the Indian Wells Valley, is just loaded with that history and that culture, they just decided to really spread that message and just started small and little by little it kind of Like you said, we kind of branded the city with petroglyphs. And in 2014, they had an idea to do a petroglyph festival. And so how does does one brand the city with petroglyphs? (laughs) Incrementally, they went to the city. And so the city council thought that that was a good idea. Then they went literally door to door to businesses. The Visitors Bureau, which I now manage, offered to sponsor each business and by sponsor, We basically paid to have a local artist come and paint petroglyphs on buildings and on, you know, we'll talk about Petroglyph Park in a few minutes, but it just really started with seeing petroglyphs popping up here and there and renderings of the petroglyphs that we have out in our valleys and canyons. And just one by one, little by little, petroglyphs started popping up until it actually became a visible identity that we've now adopted. So it begins to be associated with the uh, identity of Ridgecrest. Right. Yeah. Then uh, I guess we began together to try to understand how does one create and develop a themed event called the Petroglyph Festival. Mm-hmm. How the heck, how the heck does, does one do that? <laughs> well, that first year, you know, when they had this idea, there was a group of them and they sat down and just really started thinking, okay, what elements do we need to create really? Because n- nothing of the sort even existed and still really doesn't actually, but wh- what elements do we need to create a Petroglyph Festival? And so They worked with some of the Native Americans in our community. They started there and then they branched out to work with some of the local tribes in our area. And just, you know, they had kind of a baptism by fire and learning all the different history and just, you know, different elements that they wanted to incorporate into the festival. And so that first year was more of um, had definitely had a street fair feel with little bits of petroglyphs and little bits of that culture woven in. But year by year, we've kind of just pulled back the whole street fair theme and we've been able to incorporate more of the heritage and more of the history and more, 
stories from Native Americans and basket weaving. And, you know, that one year we had the agave roast. Yeah, food, definitely food. And so we still have parts of the street fair, lots of good food, good shopping. But I I think I think that the one of the things that you've done, which is so rather amazing, is people are coming to be enriched educationally, topically, to see, hear, taste, sense, and learn about Native Americans. Isn't that amazing? It is. And it's it's very true. We've really worked hard to incorporate the educational aspect of it and to have it be a full, fully immersive experience. So usually uh, during the Petroglyph Festival, Matarango Museum is facilitating tours, actual petroglyph tours to Little Petroglyph Canyon, which sits on our Navy base here. And so you can kind of just take it all in. We we have visitors that come from internationally, actually, during the festival time. So it's something that we're really uh, excited about each year. And so so they have a chance to take a brief field trip and to see and touch the real deal on base. What else can one do, I guess, is uh, get a sense of some of the dances and singing and uh, entertainment venues from uh, some of the groups that we've been successful in bringing on board. Yes. So the last few years, we've had a few really performances that have been a highlight. Keynotes, I'd have to say. Hallmarks. Yes. We've had the um, Ram Dancers. And the Ram Dancers is quite a remarkable thing. Here's Dr. Alan Garfinkel, who's been studying rock art, principally associated with bighorn sheep out of the Kosos for about the last 40 or 50 years, beginning back in way, way back in 1980 or even earlier than that. And I had never heard or known in contemporary circumstances that there was a group of Native people who still practiced and uh, recognized their ancestral connection to the bighorn sheep and danced as the uh, ancient ones did, uh, replicating the movements of the bighorn and perceiving a religious connection to them. Well, I think by accident, several years ago, when I was uh, looking on the internet, I saw a picture of them and they were very colorful and it was a whole family, a clan, you know, I'd say, no less than 10 people. And it said they called the Ram Dancers of the Grand Canyon. And I said, oh my word, I can't believe this. And I saw a video of them, it was fabulous. And now the next challenge was, how do we, how do we connect with them? <laughs> I don't know at what point in your discovery of the Ram Dancers, you shared them with me, but you did at some point. And so I started out on the mission uh, to connect with them. And it was not an easy task. No, the first year we did, we failed miserably. We tried every possible way and connection and phone calls and, and even daisy chaining from those. Oh yeah, I know them, but uh, uh, how do we find them or how do we connect with them? Well, as it turns out, I have a colleague who uh, studies the bighorn sheep and, uh, visits them at great length. And he says, he told me, well, uh, there's, there's someone I know. <laughs> I think her name was Marcy. Yes. And she's associated with the 
have a is it the, the Wallapai? And she's involved with uh, cultural resource management and heritage preservation. And she might know something about them. So I called her. And yes, she answered her telephone. And she said, oh, yeah, I know them. And they're, they're uh, you know, friendly with me. And I connect with them regularly. And I'll get them for you. And that was the big breakthrough, that was. wasn't it? Yep. And so I started working with Marcy. And she did. She really was instrumental in connecting us and then really kind of being the middle middleman that first year. And so they came to the festival and it was such an incredible experience. And our whole town was just kind of a joy. Oh yeah. And just crowds came just to um, watch them. And I think we had them share two or three times that first weekend. And they come with the whole family. They're the men, the women, the children. And you have to understand they come from the bottom of the Grand Canyon. Yes. The bottom. Literally. Ladies and right. ladies and gentlemen, they have to take a helicopter out of the Grand Canyon to even get to a vehicle so they can drive how many how many hours of driving to get from the bottom of the Grand Canyon to Ridgecrest, California. <laughs> it's quite a trip. But they're the nicest people you can possibly imagine. They feel tremendously honored. They're uh, very humble people and just a joy to behold. Absolutely. We're proud to have them each year. And so we have we have them and we have uh, others that uh, are of Native American Association, do we not? We do. Not as many have been a fixture. The others have kind of rotated throughout the years. This last year we had, and actually this was really another one of the highlights, the gentleman from the Tabatalaval tribe. Yes. Mm-hmm. When he shared, that was really, it just draws a crowd. People just stand and listen, and it's really neat. Yeah, this is a local indigenous group. They're from the far southern Sierra. And uh, mm-hmm. when you have uh, local uh, indigenous Native American people telling their stories and uh, connecting with the people, it's it's rather special. Definitely. So we did that, and uh, we pioneered a new, a new activity, a new department, allied with the Petroglyph Festival, and that is tours of Petroglyph Park. <laughs> Go ahead, Carrie. Talk about that, would you? It sounds. <laughs> I think it's a lot more exciting in real life than it sounds. But here in town, we have. Petroglyph Park. And so that is a county park that we, again, that original group that really worked to brand Ridgecrest as the Petroglyph City, they worked with the county to create this park. And it's an actual park with a playground and trees and sidewalks for walking and riding bicycles. And But throughout the park, we have replicas of actual petroglyphs that are found here. I believe those are the ones that are in Petroglyph Canyon. Is that right? Yep. And and they also have representations of petroglyphs that are found all over the world. And one gentleman did all these. He, he, he actually was there with me. And I believe he said there was something like 25 tons of rock that was imported and he had to erect it uh, and set it up from an engineering standpoint. And actually, in, a, in one of the cases, he actually did an experimental study to uh, discern 
how long it might take to do just one of these images to, um, to do it. And, it. and it took just for one image, the life-size uh, bighorn, I think it said he took him eight hours to actually manufacture one of those images. Is that right? So I didn't yeah. actually know that. Took him eight hours to just manufacture that one image, that one element of a uh, life-size bighorn sheep as uh, com- comparatively that was copied from the uh, little Petroglyph Canyon imagery. So anyways, he was there and we talked about how he personally did this. He did all that uh, etching and scratching and and pounding and painting for all these glyphs that he's done on site. They weren't done off site and dragon. He did all of his work over the course, I think it was like three or four years to just put those images on the rocks and uh, erect them all over this park. And so my job, should I decide to accept it, was to go there and uh, educate those people who had an interest in walking around the park and learning something about these glyphs. And it was fabulous. It's like a, you know, it's like a, a slide presentation or PowerPoint presentation, but it's up close and personal and they have, uh, examples of archaeological features in association with those uh, images. And it works. That's right. We got a lot of great feedback on those tours. And it was kind of the perfect marriage to have you there with the educational side and then Olaf there with the artistic creator side. It was really neat. And I am hoping that we can continue to do that in the future. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll make that a fixture as part and parcel of our of our efforts. Yeah. Well, that's it for the first segment. See you in the flip-flop, gang. Looking to expand your knowledge of x-rays and imaging in the archaeology field? Then check out an introduction to paleoradiography, a short online course offering professional training for archaeologists and affiliated disciplines. Created by archaeologist, radiographer, and lecturer James Elliott, the content of this course is based upon his research and teaching experience in higher education. It is approved by the Register of Professional Archaeologists and the Chartered Institute for Archaeologists as four hours of training. So don't miss out on this exciting opportunity for professional and personal development. For more information on and course structure, visit paleoimaging.com. That's P-A-L-E-O imaging.com and check out the link in the show notes. Welcome back to segment two. This is uh, the 67th Rock Art Podcast. We're uh, doing an interview with Carrie Crutcher, the executive director of the Ridgecrest Convention and Visitors Bureau, one of the principal people associated with the Petroglyph Festival and some of the tours of Petroglyph Park. And now we're going to be chatting a bit about uh, the foundation that they're a part of to educate people on uh, rock art and also talk about the new welcome facility, welcome to California facility, and some of the wondrous elements of that new brick and mortar facility. I'm here. Thank you. So as part and parcel of what you're t- we're trying to accomplish, I guess, vis-a-vis the Petroglyph Festival, you have a, a, a is it a nonprofit foundation? We do. It's called the Petroglyph Education Foundation. Okay. And uh, what exactly does that do? We talked in the first segment about the early days of the Petroglyph Festival and its origination. And so going back to that group that started it, they realized that this was more than just a little festival or painting some petroglyphs on buildings, that they really wanted to grow this really to make it official, but to make it something that was educational. 
And so they founded the Petroglyph Education Foundation, which is a nonprofit organization primarily working to educate locals and others on that history in our region. And how is the, how is that done? How do they uh, approach that that challenge? I know that's been a a love and a passion for me as well, but it, it, it isn't something that is easily accomplished, is it? No, it's not at all. And the makeup of the board of directors is a group who is just passionate about this, similar to you. And I know that your board of directors is very passionate about what you guys do, but it's made up of a few people who work with Matarango Museum, some museum docents, an archaeologist, you know, just different people who come from that that kind of a background. And so they work, and I've got to say, we work really closely with Matarango Museum. They are integral in the educational part. So they work with the local schools. Of course, COVID has kind of put a wrench in things, but prior to COVID, in representing the Education Foundation, the docents from the museums would go into the schools or host the schools at the museum and just teach them about the petroglyphs and about the Native Americans and how they, you know, just the different things that they did. And so our kids, as they're growing up in school, they're now learning all this local history that we have that you would never even know about. I grew up here and I had no idea until I came to this job what is sitting in our valley. And so it's really neat that we're able to share that with our students in the area. And then beyond that, with the Petroglyph Festival and some of the other stuff that we do. So it's, a, it's an outreach program. It's one that you uh, try to capture the youngsters and teach them a bit about their uh, immediate environment and about the Native people and about the uh, imagery on the rocks. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. And how has it been going? Is it is it something that you do regularly throughout the year? About how many students do you get to see? Where do they go to experience this? Yeah, they do it regularly throughout the year. And depending on the size of the school, the museum will either go to the school and bring some of the artifacts and some activities and some art projects that they can do there at the school. The smaller schools actually go to the museum and here in my office on my little bulletin board, I have a drawing that my son did when he went to the museum mm-hmm. with his class. And so he, they, each of the students get to do their own little versions of a petroglyph. And so it's just, it's really neat. So do they ever go out in the field to the actual rock art or are they mainly going to the museum itself? That part of it isn't something that they incorporate with the students in the school district. Uh Um, They do host field trips otherwise, though. Oh, good. Good. That's very nice. I know that I did that on my own when I worked with some of the Native American groups, the Owens Valley Career Development Center. And I took the, uh, we had field trips both for the parents and the children and uh, did some in-class learning and then actually had them go on field trips to an actual rock art site themselves and experience what that was all about as well. So it sounds like there's that opportunity there to enhance the um, experience, both from the museum side and then some uh, real live associations with perhaps some of the rock art itself that's there on the base or even outside the base for that matter. And now, I guess, 
there's another part and parcel of all this with something called, is it called the California Welcome Center? Is that how, is that the name of it? It is the California Welcome Center Ridgecrest. We are now part of a network of 21 California Welcome Centers that are strategically placed throughout the state of California. So the um, California Welcome Center just opened and it was opened, uh, grand opening, I think it was synchronous with the festival, wasn't it? It was. And so it was a brilliant idea and also a horrible idea. I thought this is either the best idea we've ever had or it's going to kill me. I don't know. Um, It was a lot of work to open the Welcome Center. We moved into a larger facility and there was a remodel involved and then just building the exhibits and the retail space and all of it. And we had a very short time frame to work with. So it was a lot of work, but we pulled it off. We opened November 6th, with, which was in conjunction with the Petroglyph Festival. And we had a great opening weekend and things have really been going well since then. How many folks toured the uh, facility, do you think? A few hundred. Yeah. Yeah. When I was there, it was packed. Talk a bit about some of the Mm -hmm. displays or some of the interactive uh, representations that were there for when people came into the Welcome Center to see and feel and touch and get some uh, flavor for the uh, Indian Wells Valley and also the immediate vicinity in terms of a bit of educational enrichment. Yeah, so you just said it, in educational enrich- enrichment. That is something that's important to us here at the Visitors Bureau. And Ridgecrest is often overlooked in a lot of ways. And the history that is here, the interesting things that go on here, whether it be, you know, all of the archae- archaeological exciting things that go on or all of the filming that goes on in our area, we have a large amount of TV and film productions that take place here. And so we just wanted to focus on the awesome parts of Ridgecrest and so, and highlight that for our locals, but also for our guests. And so what we've done is we have four different exhibits here inside the Welcome Center. And one of them highlights just the history of Ridgecrest Ridgecrest has a cool history starting in the 1940s. The Navy came here to do top secret work in support of World War II. And then a Navy base popped up around that. And then the city popped up around the base. And so there's a lot of fun facts there that we like to highlight. And then we do have an exhibit focusing on petroglyphs and archaeology and we actually just just today, Matarango Museum came in and placed a display here in the Welcome Center. So we now have some, a few little petroglyphs and a, a few other things, some natural history stuff, a coyote and some snakes and other things. So that's something that's new, Alan, that you haven't seen. I haven't even seen it yet. Definitely. Well, you know that um, I wasn't around when uh, Ridgecrest started. <laughs> <laughs> but I, but I, I heard, some, but I, but I heard some things. I heard it was called Crumville before it was. That it was. <laughs> well, I think they, I think they missed the, uh, missed the boat. It should always be called Crumville. But the, the um, interesting thing on that, on that one sort of exhibit, is that you have a virtual reality 
exhibit, probably one of the only ones in the world that I'm aware of, uh, on rock art. Am, am I correct? Right. And so that was that's kind of our final last but definitely not least exhibit. We have a virtual reality experience. What the heck is that? What the heck? What the heck is a virtual reality experience? Tell me. Yeah, about. I never really knew what it was either. You put on the special little headset like goggles and you're watching. It's actually a video, but it's something that is talk about an immersive experience. You put on the goggles and you feel like you are there. And so we have the petroglyph tour, which you actually are featured in. Yeah, we have it. We drop, we drop them right down in little petroglyph Canyon and we start showing them some of the glyphs and it's, it's three dimensional. They can reach out, they can turn around, they can look up, they can look down and they are in the Canyon. And it is not like a cartoon. I mean, the resolution and the, the, reality of this is so overwhelming. You feel as though you are literally there. It's really incredible. And I, I got to say, I was kind of a, not a naysayer, but maybe a little bit skeptical about the whole virtual reality thing. And when we first met the um, filmmaker, he gave us a little sample of some of his work. And I could not believe when I put on those goggles, I just couldn't believe you literally feel like you're in a different world. And so Right now, it's twofold. With COVID, the petroglyphs on the base are not accessible. And even in the best of times, there are still some restrictions because those petroglyphs are on the Navy base. And so with this VR experience, it's an alternative now for those who can't make it out there to see the things in real life. It's really the second best. I know that um, I've taken a number of my colleagues to uh, visit with the the executive producer who does the VR, the uh, demonstrations and these exhibits. Uh, one woman who's, I believe she's almost in her 80s now. She's been uh, down to the great mural rock art, these larger than life-size paintings in Baja, California, about 100 times, about 50 times in her lifetime on the back of a mule. And it happened that uh, this individual had uh, captured some of that imagery and she put on the headset and oh my Lord, she was transported instantaneously mm-hmm. to her lo- lovely Canyon. And she started lecturing <laughs> and telling oh us God. and telling us all about each of the images and what they meant. And it was just wondrous. And oh, she was like over the moon, absolutely over the moon about the re- reality and the depth of per- perception and the, way in which they are perceived. I guess unless someone experiences this, they may not understand. It's like being on a holodeck, if you've seen that Star Trek you know, show. You really feel as though you're part and parcel of this environment. And you can literally reach out and touch and feel and sense the imagery. Plus the environment is there, the natural environment is all there for you to experience with with a sense of brilliance and tone and and everything else about it. It's gone on beyond the the sort of the animatronic elements to something that is uh, really uh, hard to explain and over the top, isn't it? It is. It's that's it. It's hard to explain and over the top and just absolutely incredible. You kind of just have to see it to believe it. <laughs> yeah. 
And, and fortunately, this is probably one of the only rock art public displays that has this kind of exhibit in the world that I'm aware of. There's, I don't think there's any others at this point, with the exception of maybe some in China or some other places like that where they're using the technology to uh, not do rock art, but deal with some of the other uh, historic elements of their culture. So it's really quite a featured element to have such, such a wondrous display available for the general public. And I'll, I guess we'll close out this segment with that particular piece. See you all on the flip-flop, gang. Welcome back, gang, all you uh, Archeo podcasters. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel with Rock Art Podcast number 67 with Carrie Crutcher, who's the executive director of the California Welcome Center and also the Convention and Visitors Bureau here of uh, Ridgecrest. And of course, the Rock Art Festival that uh, occurs the first weekend of November. And we're talking about all things rock art associated with the festival and uh, associated with the new Welcome Center, California Welcome Center, there in Ridgecrest. So is this the first Welcome Center to be in Ridgecrest? It is. The nearest one is maybe, I don't know, about an hour away. And Ridgecrest was selected by the state of California because of our proximity to Death Valley. Some call us the gateway to Death Valley or the closest full service city to Death Valley. And also um, our proximity to the national parks to the north. So it's a good spot for a welcome center. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's strategically placed. I don't think people understand the centrality of the interesting geography that relates to Ridgecrest and how it kind of is a a pivotal spot. It's been pivotal for me for the last uh, 40 or 50 years. I used to live in Sacramento, but I would uh, come down to Bakersfield often to do a lot of uh, archaeological research or cultural resources management work over the years. But my uh, tug was always to connect with Ridgecrest Ridgecrest is there at the um, western edge, the southwestern corner of the Great Basin. It's also uh, just north of what's called the El Paso Mountains, which has the Garlock Fault at the base of it. And it um, is kind of, you know, straddling what might be called the Mojave Desert versus the, the uh, floristically, the Great Basin. The higher deserts move up to Owens Valley, which is just north of Ridgecrest, and then south is the Mojave Desert. Well, just to the west is the far Southern Sierra, and that's the um, all-weather pass, Walker Pass, that exists that allows people to uh, roam from Bakersfield all through the South Fork of the Kern River Canyon and traveling on up over the Sierra and right on down into the Indian Wells Valley in the Western Mojave Desert. Well, also it's it's uh, geographically sort of central to a number of different, what we would call Indian groups. They call them ethnic identities or ethnolinguistic groups or tribes, if you will. And uh, this is a heartland for a lot of things. They call it the heartland of the Numic, the Numic of the Great Basin, Paiute Shoshone. It's also an area where we talk about 
maybe a homeland to the ethnogenesis, meaning the beginnings or the development of this ethnic entity that they call the Numic, which are the historic native people speaking the uh, languages of the Paiute Shoshone. Well, up in the uh, mountains, we had a group called the Tabatalabal, and they were the pinion pine nut eaters. They were a linguistic isolate, and um, they had the uh, resources of the Sierra there at their fingertips. They had the water, they had the pine nuts, they had the acorns, they had the fish, they had a lot of different resources, and their numbers were a little bit higher than the desert. You can go up to the you know, the, the peaks right there, five, six, seven, eight thousand feet, and then you descend down to three thousand on the desert floor, and you go through a number of floristic groups. You go from the uh, pinion pine at the top, and then you go through the Joshua tree and the sagebrush down to the creosote bush scrub, all in a matter of maybe half an hour or less. And it's rather amazing, just the diversity that's there. But uh, right there, you get into the um, volcanic terrain that's just absolutely mes- mesmerizing. And there's a tremendous amount of lava volcanoes and uh, geothermal activity just right there at the base of what's called Walker Pass, right there just north of Ridgecrest. And so uh, Ridgecrest is sort of at the, at the center of all this. It's also, in the, for a research standpoint, it's also the place where a number of researchers have said that the Uto-Aztecan linguistic groups, which are scattered all over California, from Southern California, but also in the American Southwest and into Mexico, may have, may have in fact originated right there uh, vis-a-vis a homeland, uh, smack dab there at China Lake, so for, for many, many reasons, there's a lot going on in this place we call Ridgecrest. Remember how I said a few minutes ago that so much neat stuff goes on here and we're just yes. overlooked? Even yes. just hearing you describe geographically where we are, I'm thinking, oh. dang, I could just take that little snippet and make it's a amazing. commercial. It sounds so Absolutely awesome not. just hearing... <laughs> Just hearing you say that. The geography itself. I mean, it's taken me 50 years to figure all this out. But, you know, floristically, it's amazing. When you get a good rain or any kind of a spring flowering in the desert, it always amazes me to see the literally fluorescent, the the colors of these native plants that can be seen just by walking the ground and into the canyons around Indian Wells Valley. I know that there's always a, um, a spring flower display with Matarango. It's jaw-dropping, isn't it? It's incredible. I mean, yeah, The unfortunately this year we didn't get much rain, so we probably won't have much of a wildflower season. But on those years when we get a good bloom, it's just incredible. And then you pair that with the sunrises and sunsets over the Sierras, and it's just... It's just beautiful. And people tell me that that people come from all over the world to see the clouds <laughs> that exist only in Indian Wells Valley because of the unique, oh, really? the unique properties of the winds. The winds get, uh, you know, sheltered by those Sierras, right, coming up over the top. Right. And then they shoot out and stretch <laughs> these clouds 
and they have cloud formations that are found nowhere else in the world except for the Indian Wells Valley. And so when you uh, meet these people, as you would at the Welcome Center or other places, it's always amazing to hear that they're on their way to Death Valley or they're looking for Trona, you know, the Trona Pinnacles or, right. uh, oh, or they, they want to find out about the El Paso Mountains and Last Chance Canyon mm-hmm. <laughs> or, the, or the Sacred Mountain of the Tribesmen where it's a uh, black mountain is there. I mean, it, it's never ending, you know, right. everywhere you, everywhere you look, there's a story. And if someone is interested in the natural world, history and prehistory, it's all around. You've got the mining towns of Randsburg and Johannesburg just there. They're uh, living legends. Right. And, and just to the South of, of Ridgecrest there in the El Paso mountains, I personally put, the entire mountain range on the uh, sacred site register for Native Americans because I was asked by the Kauaisu people to do that. It has the highest concentration of rock rings in the entire California desert. Right there, that entire mountain range has literally thousands of them, thousands of of rock rings. And um, rock art is everywhere. To the north, we're having, uh, there's another privately owned uh, treasure and that's a place called little lake little lake uh, you can stop and see rock art that's available both um right in front of you or over at what's called fossil falls and red hill which is a cinder cone and um the uh, california rock art foundation will be taking a bit of a trip field trip out there and fortunately we're blessed that uh, the private owners of this treasure allows us to to visit and take take little field trips in there. So that's kind of remarkable and a lot of fun. But uh, the BLM also has areas that are open for camping and right there at Fossil Falls. And that area is on the National Register as well. It's a treasure trove of both um, of archaeology and a taste of rock art. So you have all of that. Plus now with the partnership of the California Rock Art Foundation with uh, the Welcome Center, We're going to be having a a series of lectures, aren't we? We are. Lots planned for this partnership in the future. We have one coming up with uh, a native Californian Indian weaver, don't we? Yeah. So we're looking in March, I believe, to host her. Her name is Lucy. Yeah, Lucy Parker. And she's a she's, I believe, the granddaughter of of a famous weaver named name. Yeah. Name 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 Parker Tellus. And uh, she produced some of the most magnificent masterpiece California Indian baskets in the history of the art art form. And as it turns out, I'm the editor of a volume that that features her amongst other weavers. And we're honored and blessed that she has continued that tradition. And she told me that both her daughter and granddaughter are also weavers, California Indian basket weavers, if you can believe that. Which is a myth. Yeah. Amazing. She's um, a Kuzetika Paiute, which means a Mono Lake Paiute. She also has Miwok ancestry and Pomo. So she's got a lot of bloodlines that are some of the most spectacular weaving traditions in all of California. So I, I did hear her before, but just on Zoom. I've never met her live, but this will be exciting for me to connect with her. And then we're going to try to get uh, a colleague of mine who's going to bring down some of his... Uh, a very rare and very um, uh, amazing 
California Indian masterpiece baskets. So we'll we'll have uh, quite a lot to do and say, and she'll be weaving and uh, be able to spend the entire day there talking to visitors to the Welcome Center and uh, having a good time interacting. So I think this is a, sort of a beginning of things to come vis-a-vis the way in which we can do some of this educational enrichment. One of the things I like to do, even with these uh, one-day field trips, is to twin them with a, a deep dive into the mysteries of rock art study in Native American and lecture. So we're going to be uh, using the the facility, the hospitality of the Welcome Center, to um, do some lectures and also have a, perhaps a keynote speaker in the evening, the uh, day before we do the field trip. So that's all planned as well. Give me sort of a, a vision of what you think we're headed in for the uh, future with the Welcome Center and, of course, the Petroglyph Festival. Well, I mean, you touched on two specific events that we already have in the works, but we really look forward to the partnership with the CRAF and with any other entities that are willing and interested, but we just want to grow the educational aspect like I talked about before. We have a beautiful facility now, lots of interesting things to see. We've really highlighted our area beautifully, and so we look forward to now bringing in others who can highlight their expertise. Yes, their, their, highlight their, their, their expertise. Their knowledge, their expertise, their their um, their core competencies, because there's so many amazing people that live in the Indian Wells Valley. At one point, believe it or not, they said there were more people living in Ridgecrest that had PhDs than uh, anywhere in the country. And I think that was because of the, the base there at Ridgecrest employing some tremendous uh, people that had incredible academic background. I absolutely believe that that's true. We have some incredible, incredible minds here. And uh, because of that, there's, uh, you know, tremendous treasures. Uh, I never fail to amaze me when I start, you know, going on the road or talking to people. And I mention Ridgecrest and they, they tell me that they'd been out there and visited some of the wonderful places to see and do. And it's an amazing place visually um, stunning in a lot of ways and also endlessly engaging for the mind if one is uh, interested in learning more about the natural world I call it the uh, I call it the natural history and culture history of um, when you're thinking about sort of going into the desert people see it as uh, a place of lack a place of deficiency but I think as one begins to drill down and learn more about it, it can be endlessly engaging. And one could spend a lifetime just trying to learn a, a bit about how it ticks. Don't you agree? Absolutely. I absolutely do. I always, well, I do always say all roads lead to Ridgecrest because it feels like no matter where you go, just like you just said, someone who was from Ridgecrest or visited or, you know, their grandfather worked here, whatever it may be. So there's something just, I don't know, there's something kind of magical about this place um, and the beauty and the community that we have here. It's kept me, uh, you know, centered 
in this particular location for 50 years. Must be a reason for it. Carrie, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time to visit with us today. See you on the flip-flop, gang. See you next week. God bless. Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rock art. Thanks for listening and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.